Good morning, everybody. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And um, as Dan shared, the way the holiday, this calendar works this year, we go right into Advent this Sunday. I want to mention a few things just that are going on here at Cornerstone today and uh, in the next week or so. Today starts the Advent season. This is a series of weeks where Christians all around the world anticipate the return of Jesus while we also remember his first visit. And so we're all very familiar with the songs and the readings and the nativity and the different traditions that we have during this time of year. But it is meant to help help us remember the story we belong to. One of the things that's missing today in our modern culture that's so full of different ideas and different narratives about life is we don't have one story pulling us together. But times like Christmas remind us that we belong to a bigger story. That's the value of traditions. Traditions remind us that our life is not just about us. Life is bigger than us, and we actually belong to something great big. And when it comes to the story of Jesus, we belong to a beautiful story of renewal called the kingdom of God. And so we start Advent today. If you have not yet picked up one of these books and candles to take home, it's a gift uh, from us to you so that you can... uh, Provide some meaning in your family as you move through the the weeks of Advent for the next few weeks. And I am also told, I've also been told that I need to light the first of the Advent candles. It stays lit. The candles we'll see here in a moment are an image of Jesus, the light of the world. And we'll spend a whole lot of time today talking about light. But I want to encourage you to pick up one of those Advent books and make this season as meaningful as possible for you and those in your home because this is a special time of year, and there is so much meaning and transformation that we can experience this time of year. Also starting this week, tomorrow night, starts Hanukkah. So Jews all over the world for the next eight nights will light candles or an additional candle to remember two miracles that God performed for their nation. One miracle was they defeated an army much bigger than them. They, They experienced freedom for the first time in hundreds of years, and then many of you are familiar with the story they lit the menorah, can- the menorah candle stand in uh, the temple. They only had oil for one night, but miraculously, the lamp stayed lit for eight nights. And so ever since then, Jews, including Jesus, celebrated this tradition. And this year, the two holidays line up. And so today, we're going to highlight the two holidays, and I'm going to make a connection to one special verse, which is where many of our traditions of Christmas comes from. But it's also in the context of Hanukkah that Jesus spoke these words And I want to show you that. So I want you to see this is a special time to celebrate God. Uh, One of the images that comes up this time of year is the image of light. God is like light. Light is a source of hope. It's a source of warmth that illuminates, allows life to grow, allows new life to emerge. And God is the source of all of that hope, all of that life. And so for ages, God has been likened to a light that shines in the darkness, Now, every couple years, I'm reminded of how important light is to me. Anyone else in the room find themselves at times waking up in like a strange hotel, and you wake up and it's pitch dark, and you go into a panic because you don't know where you're at? Anyone do that, or is that just me? Okay, a few of us. All right, I have what you would call minor claustrophobia. Minor claustrophobia. Until you place me in a deep, deep, dark cave. A few years ago, we were in Israel, Gene... Binder and Gabe Kinsley, a couple of our pastors, and Gene was taking me through a tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. 
It's an ancient tunnel that was dug by the Jews long ago. It's amazing. They were digging from opposite directions, and they found each other just by the knock on rocks. They were able to find the sound of the knock on rocks. They were able to find where they were and meet these two tunnels together. Well, today you can walk through this tunnel. And if any of you have been on the tour with Gene, you've done this, this walk if you're brave or crazy. Now, I had no idea what I was getting into, but I enter into this tunnel and I realize that the ancient Israelites didn't have shoulders like modern day former wrestlers, all right? They also weren't as tall as six feet tall. And so I'm walking through this tunnel, my shoulders are being scraped and I'm having to duck down as I walk through the tunnel. And to make matters worse, there's water up to your knees and it's pitch dark. And none of us have a flashlight except this little tour guide who's in front of us who has a headlamp. I'm thinking that we're going to walk through this tunnel for a minute or two. And I hear her talking to Gabe ahead of me, and I, in a panic, ask the question, how long does it take to get through this tunnel? Now, at this point, we had been in the tunnel for, for a few moments, and there were people lined up behind me, so there was no way to get out. And I heard the tour guide say, sometimes it takes 45 minutes to walk through this tunnel. 45 minutes, I thought. I have to get out of here as fast as possible. I look behind me and in front of me, and there's no place to go, and I go into a full-on anxiety attack right there in Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, Gabe Kinsley and I are close enough, we're like brothers, that my demise is his joy, and so he's, he, he's loving this. At first, he thinks I'm joking, and he turns around, and he looks in my eyes, and he realizes he's never seen this look in my eyes before, and he's like, Brian is absolutely nuts right now. So he laughs for a while, and, and I'm, the panic is getting worse, and I actually come up with this plan that still makes sense to me today, and the plan goes like this. I'm going to bang my head into one of the rock on the side of the wall and knock myself out, and Gabe is going to float me, or turn me on my back and float me out of the tunnel. That's the plan. I now have so much sympathy for people who have anxiety attacks. You are out of your mind. It feels out of control. So right before I bang my head into the rock, Gabe says, why don't you try to pass by me? So there was a, a little widening in, in the tunnel at one point, and he scoots in there, and we pass each other in the tunnel, and I get in front of him, and I'm right behind the tour guide that has the single light, and I'm able to look over her head because she's very short, and I can see the light shining down the, the tunnel because there's no one in front of her, thank God. And I'm able to survive and make it through the tunnel. Light is really important when you need it, right? By the way, the, the lesson also is, for those of you going on the tour in April, be very, uh, very aware of Hezekiah's tunnel because, you know, it, things can go bad in there. <laughs> but light is absolutely, absolutely needed. Today we start a, uh, a series called Comfort and Joy. And today I want us to think about the light of life that comes from a passage in John chapter 8 when Jesus spoke these famous words. In verse 12, he says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will, walk in, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now again, it's this passage that our modern-day tradition of Christmas comes from and is inspired from, and it's also in the context of Hanukkah that Jesus spoke these words, and so I want to show you how meaningful the image of light is at this time of year. 
Jesus in this moment is trying to reveal himself. He's trying to say, oh, for, for many years you've known that God is like light. But here in this moment, Jesus is exposing himself. He's taking himself out of obscurity and he's saying, I am like the God that you've always thought of. In fact, I am him. And I am the light of all life. Uh, I, I, my light leads to wisdom. It leads to revealing. It leads to revelation. I will mark the way for you. Light has always been an important image for marking the path for people. It's always been an image of what needs to be uh, of revealing of the things that are hidden in the world, hidden in our heart, hidden in the world. Light also provides the necessary ingredients for life and new life. And Jesus is saying, that is what I am like. You have a hard time understanding God, but you understand light. I am like that. Now, just the moment, or just a few moments before Jesus speaks these words, there's this weird exchange that takes place between Jesus and some religious leaders. Jesus is actually in the temple court, and they bring to Jesus because they know that he's this rising leader, spiritual leader in Israel. So the, the leaders that actually have the power that were working in the temple, they bring to Jesus a woman who's been caught in her sin. We're told that she was caught in the act of cheating on her husband. And Jewish law said that someone like that had to be killed. Now, ironically, they only bring the woman and the man is not there. And so Jesus in this moment takes the opportunity to protect the woman. And he says, if, if any of you are without sin, you can be the first to cast the, the stone. And then Jesus says these words to the woman right in front of everyone. He says, neither do I condemn you, declares Jesus. Now go and leave and sin no more. What he's doing in this moment is he's forgiving the woman of her offense and releasing her of all the consequences. Now, you have to know this about Jewish life. The only person, the only one that is able to forgive sins is God. And so Jesus, right here in the moment, is speaking like he's God, and then he says, I am like the God that you've always thought of as light. Whoever walks by my light will never experience darkness. Now, Jesus is not saying that life will be easy, but he's describing an inner transformation that makes a person more resilient. Their heart is full. They're able to deal with the struggles of life because they have the light of life living inside of them. Now, this becomes the inspiration for Christmas. Let me show you a few places. So in John chapter 1, John was one of those disciples that was with Jesus that day in the temple. So John chapter 8, John later on is describing what he observed. And he was with Jesus when Jesus set, stood there in the temple and he protected this woman. And then he said, I am the light of life. And then John wrote this, providing meaning to the Christmas story. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Quoting Isaiah, and then he begins to speak about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning, what, that light. So that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, speaking of the baby Jesus. You get to verse 12. This is what John says of that light. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so John is trying to provide meaning to the incarnation, Jesus being present in the world, and it says it's like a light shining in heavy darkness. 
It's like a light showing up in a place of confusion. It's like light showing up in a place of despair. That's what it means when when we talk about Jesus coming to this earth. So John's trying to help people understand, but for several hundred years, there was no feast. There was no celebration for what we now call Christmas. I want to show you where it comes from because it's inspired from that passage in John chapter 8. So many of you know that the Christian faith began to spread throughout the Mediterranean world. It was the Roman world at the time. And so the gospel was being passed on from different cultures. It started in a Jewish culture. And so in the Jewish culture, they would use Jewish images to describe what God is like and what Jesus was like. And they would even use this picture of Jesus being the light of the world. And then the gospel would take on a a different form and different metaphors and illustrations were used to help the Roman world, the Greek world, understand Jesus. But as time began to pass, the gospel was taken out into other parts of the world, specifically into Northern Europe. And so you can just imagine, as the gospel begins to move north, that they're encountering different people. Now, in the third and fourth century, the people that they encountered in Northern Europe were very different from all of those in the Mediterranean, and they had never heard about a God that loves you so much that he would humble himself, come to earth, live like us on our behalf, and die, and then rise again from the dead. They had never heard that story. They'd never heard the gospel. And so Christians began to go into Northern Europe and they encounter a group of people we now know as the Celts. And we often think of the Celts only in Scotland and Ireland. But early on in the third and fourth century, they were as far east as Turkey and they dominated Northern Europe from Turkey to Ireland. And the Christians go in and they begin to tell people about Jesus and they realize that the message is not sticking. Now here's when Christians are at our best. When we take something and we don't try to force it down uh, someone's force it down someone's throat. We don't dominate people. We don't use power or violence to spread the gospel. The Christians acting in this time are acting in a very beautiful way because they enter into this culture. They begin to share the gospel. They realize it's not working, and so they do something really neat. They begin to ask them about the things that are important to them. And they heard the Celts begin to describe a holiday that takes place in the middle of what we now know as the middle of every December called the winter solstice. We all know of that. It happened in a few weeks. It's the moment of the year where light is limited the most. It's the darkest day in the entire year. And the winter solstice happens not to celebrate the darkness, but to celebrate that light is coming back. It's meant to celebrate that because light and warmth is coming back, there will once again be life. And we'll be able to survive another year. And the cold, long, dark winter will certainly come to an end. And so the Christians enter into this culture and they hear this holiday of celebrating the sun, the physical sun's return, and how it leads to hope. And those Christians remember John chapter 8, verse 1, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And they would have remembered the Apostle John's words, John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so they reframe the gospel, and they tell them the gospel through the image of light. This time every year, you're waiting, you're anticipating, you're longing for something. That is what Jesus is like. 
at just the moment when you think that all hope is gone, at just the darkest hour, God enters into our lives. Not just in some obscure way where we think about God at a distance, but God gets very, very close and we can hear him and we can be loved by him and we can love him back. And Jesus comes at just the moment when we need him most. And so in Northern Europe, Christmas becomes a feast to celebrate a different sun, right? Not the physical sun and its physical warmth and light, but the son of God, the light of the world given to each of us. Jesus is like that, is what they would say. And so traditions like Christmas lights and Advent candles and even things like your Christmas tree and giving gifts all goes back to this moment when the gospel enters Northern Europe. They enter into something that's important to them and they transform a holiday and make it about Jesus. So these are really important words that Jesus spoke. I am the light of life. Everything just about that we experience in the Western world today regarding Christmas, all the traditions, all the spiritual traditions go back to this one verse that was shared among a group of people who attached themselves to it. Isn't that a beautiful story? It's when Christians are at their best. By the way, we're meant to do the same thing every day with people in our lives. Help them see what Jesus is like. This is why we write new worship songs, and that's why someday some young preacher is going to replace me because he's going to have, um, he's going to have better stories, and he's going to have a better way of describing the gospel for a newer culture. It's the task of the church to help people understand the timeless truth that Jesus is the light of the world. Now, let's connect it to the Hanukkah tradition. So about 300 years before Jesus lived, there was a great battle that took place in Israel. Mentioned it, mentioned it a moment ago. The Jews were um, being ruled by the Greeks. Alexander the Great had moved through the Mediterranean world and had conquered Israel among all these other nations. And so you have the Hellenistic Greeks that are in charge of Israel. And one of the things that uh, the Greeks wanted to do is they wanted to bring everyone into Hellenism. They wanted to disciple them in their way of seeing the world. Well, the Jews were a stubborn group, and they would not give up their culture, and they would not give up their tradition, and they refused to say that there are many gods. And so this conflict breaks out that the Greeks are not able to get the Jews to conform to their image. And so a series of reforms takes place that uh, in Jewish history, it describes a, a time of terrible trouble or terrible suffering. A statue of the king is put up in the temple, which is the most holy place in all the world for the Jews. It's where sacrifices to God were made. It's where the presence of God rested among the Jewish people, right there in the temple. But they put a picture or a statue of the king up. They forbid the Jews from reading the Bible. They no longer can observe the Sabbath, the weekly feast of remembering that we belong to God. They're no longer able to celebrate the Jewish feasts. They ruin the temple and we all know the kosher laws, right? No pork. Well, they have a barbecue, basically, of pork in the temple. And it's described as an abomination to everything that's important to them. For the Jews, God is the center of the world. God is the center of our lives. God is the center of all things. Greek philosophy says human reason is the center. So it's a battle of philosophies. It's a battle of power. And the Jews are being oppressed. And a group of people... 
uh, rise up to defeat the Greeks. And it's a particular family, the Maccabees family. There's a dad who was a priest. He has five sons. One of his sons, Judah Maccabees, his nickname was the Hammer. He leads an army. They, they win this great battle. They drive the Greeks out. And it's the first time in 400 years that Israel is free. So one of the first things Judah does before having a celebration is he goes right to the temple because he wants to cleanse the temple and rededicate the temple. So everything gets cleaned up. The things that are broken begin uh, to be repaired. But Judah knows that he has to light something very, very special. There were different rooms of the temple. And inside the temple, uh, there, there was a room called the holy place. And in the holy place, there were three really important items. The first item is the menorah. And this is the symbol of Judaism that most people are familiar with today. God told the Jews to make the uh, menorah when they left Egypt. And he was setting up this new society and the way that they would worship. He instructed them exactly how to make it. The menorah had several candle stands on it. And it was meant to be lit all the time, and it represented the presence of God among the people. All right, so let me go a little further. Also inside that room in the temple, there was the altar of incense, which becomes a picture of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But there was a table with loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread. Many people refer to it as the showbread, which represented the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. But if you go a little further and connect us to it, it represents God's people. The menorah's lamp was meant to be lit all the time and shine its light upon the bread. It's a visible picture of something that's invisible, but what is true. And that is that God shines his light on his people. God blesses us. God cares for us. God helps us. So it's a physical picture of something that's invisible. Abraham Heschel says this about that scene. He says, there is not just a God shining on us, but there is a sense of us being exposed to God. He says, the trembling sense of the hearness of God is the assumption of our being accountable to him. God awareness is not an act of God being known to man. It's the awareness of man being known to God. So that's what the picture is. Not just that we know God, but God knows this. God knows us. And thinking about him, we are thought of by him. <clears throat> Josephus, the historian, helps us understand that the showbread actually had uh, a, a definition that's helpful for understanding what it, what it meant and what it represented. It represented the bread of the face. And the idea was that was the bread that set before the face of God. That close. So we could go all into the imagery of face. Gene's done a good job of sharing that in the past. So this room's really important. Judah has a choice. What do we do? Because there's only oil enough for one day, but it takes eight days to make this special oil. And Judah does what I think every good leader does is he takes what he has and he does what he can. He said, one day of light is better than no days of light. And so he lights the candles. And they stay lit for eight days. And every day that passes, <clears throat> the priests are saying, this is a miracle happening right in front of us. And news began to spread around Israel what was taking place inside the temple. The, the, the menorah was staying lit. And people for 400 years who thought that God had abandoned them begin to rethink that. Perhaps God is with us. Perhaps God still cares about us. Perhaps God still is the light of life. And so 
As soon as the eight days passes by, the, the new oil is refined, uh, Judah comes out and he says to the people, we're now going to have the celebration. But the celebration is not just going to be that we've won our freedom. The celebration is gonna be what God did with the oil. So from that day on, for every year, during the month of December, Jews celebrate Hanukkah, including Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 22, you can see it behind me. Then came the feast, or the festival of dedication, which is another name for Hanukkah, the dedicating of the temple at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking around Solomon's colonnades. Now here's a tradition that formed out of that that gives context to the words of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. During that first Hanukkah, Judah orders the celebration, the, the feast of dedication, the feast of Hanukkah. But he also says, you know what we're going to do at the same time? We're going to celebrate a feast that we weren't able to celebrate a few months before called Sukkot. We weren't able to. The, the, the Greeks didn't allow us to do it. So on this first Hanukkah, we're also going to celebrate Sukkot. And so because of that, both of those Jewish holidays uh, have similar symbols. And so what took place in Israel for a very, very long time on both Hanukkah and Sukkot is these giant temple menorahs. You can see the picture behind me. It's about the best rendering I could find. There's not a lot of them. So if we have an artist, I, I could use your help. Menorah 75 feet tall, but the special menorahs that reflect the Hanukkah menorahs would be lit twice a year in the temple court, at Sukkot, and at the Feast of Dedication. These menorahs were so tall that almost everyone could, any, any different place within the city, almost anyone could see the light of the menorahs. Menorah means lampstand, it also means eternal light. So it's a symbol that was used a couple times a year. So it's similar to, you know, we put flags out front of our homes a couple times a year, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Veterans Day. It means a similar thing, right? It means freedom, it means patriotism. So Jews would have known what this symbol meant. So guess when Jesus actually stood up and said, I am the light of the world. He who walks with me will never walk in darkness. I am the light of life. We're told that it was the last day of the Feast of Sukkot when the temple menorahs were lit. And they'd been lit for several days, for a full week at this time. And Jesus is there just as he was as a good Jew celebrating the holiday, and he's walking around the temple right below the menorah lights. The lights that for Jews represented freedom, the lights for Jews that represented God's presence, the light for Jews that represented hope that God can do things that no one else can, that God is with us. Jesus stood under that light and said, I am the light of life. It's an amazing picture. Jesus is helping people understand who he is. He says, for years you've looked at the menorah and you've thought about the eternal life of, light of God and you've thought about how God is with his people and how God wishes to shine his face upon the people. All that, that picture that's illustrated within the temple. But Jesus said, it's all been pointing to me. And so rather than looking at a menorah, look to me. Hope comes from God Hope comes from me. I am the light of the world. What's amazing about the gospel is that you can take it and you can place it into any culture in the world. 
And there will be things within those cultures that, that uh, the gospel challenges. So for example, right now, the gospel challenges American individualism. Our consumerism, life is about us, our control, it challenges that. But you place the gospel into different cultures, it challenges different things. You know what sings in the heart of every person is when they begin to trust God and they see that he really is the light of life. How do you know that he is the true light? But to follow him. We listen to his words and we see that he makes us wise. And that wisdom that comes from God allows us to navigate difficult circumstances in life. That's what the light of life does. It reveals wisdom to us. It marks the path. When you begin to walk with Jesus and experience friendship with God, you realize that that friendship, that relationship, being loved by him makes you more resilient to life struggles. The external struggles that are all around us, the stress that's around us, the hate that's around us, we actually become more resilient because we have this relationship that fills us up on a daily basis. That is what the light of life is like. So why did the Celts adopt the story? Because they began to test it. Could it be that there is one God who came close to us to love us and wants to lead us and reveal things about us? And as they did that, God began to transform their life and it stuck. That's why the gospel works in every culture because when it is actually experienced, people realize there is a living God behind the whole story. How about this? How about how God reveals? The light of life shows up in a number of ways and proves itself over and over again. We all know that we struggle. We all know that we have what the Bible describes as sin. You might not use the word sin, but you know there's a part of you that chooses yourself over and over again over other people or even over something that's, that, that's bigger than you, something that's right, something that's true. The Bible often describes sin as placing man-made things as ultimate things in our life. So we live for money or power or relationships or sex. That's a way to describe sin. All of us have all of that inside of us all the time. Now, some faiths say we have to earn our way out of that deficit because of that sin. But the gospel says that Jesus illuminates our lives. He exposes the sin, not to consume us, but so that we might confess that to him, experience forgiveness, and live a new life. It's a beautiful picture. The gospel is the most based in reality spiritual teaching you can find anywhere because it does not neglect or avoid the evil that's inside of us. And it doesn't just leave it. It doesn't just recognize it. It transforms it. And so Jesus exposes the darkness inside. You know what else he exposes? He exposes the darkness inside that's the result of other people's sin. We often describe this as wounds. We just live in a world where people are constantly being hurt and harmed because of our own selfishness. We carry around, around wounds from our childhood. These wounds cause us to act like someone that we're not. That's where insecurity often comes from and pride. We create narratives in our head about ourselves that are not true and so we live a life full of lies about ourselves. 
that I'm only as good as my last accomplishment, or someone could never love me, or lies about life like uh, love is conditional, which is not true in terms of God, the way he loves us, but all of these different things begin to form out of those wounds. We even, when you're wounded when you're a kid, you even begin to um, create these things called childhood vows. I will never do that. I will never be weak. I will never be exposed like that. I will never be embarrassed again. The light of life shines light on all of that darkness. Why? Not to remind us of how frail and weak and vulnerable we are. Not just to remind us of the things that we so, so uh, badly want to forget and avoid and hide away, but so that those wounds might be healed. I think it's so important that we understand that the gospel is a healing message. Let's use addiction for a moment as an example. You might have an addiction. Um, choosing that over and over again over, over other people is one of those obvious sins that most Americans agree on today. But over time, that sin begins to wound us, and often that addiction is formed out of some other wound. And so when you spend time in, uh, in like an AA meeting or with counselors who are working with those that are addicted, they try to get beneath the behavior and say, what is it that's causing you to do these things? That's the wound. So not only does he expose the sin to forgive it and to set us free, but he goes deep down and he brings healing. That's what the light of life does. The reason the Christmas story stuck, the reason that we're still here today and that we can celebrate the gospel is because at some point, each one of us that has said yes to Jesus has said yes again because he has proven himself to us, that it's true. And so whether or not you need the image of a candle at Christmas or Christmas lights, or a Hanukkah menorah, whatever it is, all of those things point to the same reality, and that is that God is with us, he cares about us, and his light changes darkness. More of God is what we need. More of God in all the places that are dark. And this reality leads to tremendous hope. Baxter Kruger, an author we like to read here, says this. I think it describes the message of the light of life very well. He says, we suddenly know that we are not alone, not abandoned, abandoned or rejected by God, that we never have been and never will be, that we are included in a communion of overflowing life, that we belong to something beautiful. In Jesus, we see the Father's unflinching heart and his abiding love for us. And we are amazed and thrilled and full of hope. You know, as pastors, we know that Christmas and the holidays can be very difficult for people because it's just, you know, we're reminded of what we don't have. We're reminded of who's not with us. We're reminded of who we're not with. And that's all very, very real. But there's something comforting to know that once a year we're reminded that there's a God who hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't flinched. He hasn't stopped shining his face upon us. And that when we need him, he is always there for us. And so as I close and the worship team comes out, I want to just give us a couple simple applications. And I speak to a couple people, a couple groups of people. 
So the first group are those of you that have heard Christmas messages like this for your entire life. God means something to you. You've known Jesus for a very long time. Jesus means something to you. We live in a dehumanizing world that tries to make us feel very, very small. I just want to say this to you today. You belong to a great, big, beautiful story. You were on his mind when he came the first time. And you are on his mind right now, and he will be looking for your face when he comes the second time. You belong to a great, big, beautiful story. And you know what the message of light does? Is it catches on and it spreads. Remember what Jesus said of you? You are the light of the world. See, Christmas should fill our hearts with the reality that God is with us, the light of life, but it should reset, uh, reset our purpose that we are meant to live as the light of the world. And so tomorrow, many of you are going to go to your classrooms and your offices and your businesses, and you're going to go on sales calls, and you're going to go back to class. Listen, you're the light of the world. Light is meant to create more light and be spread. And so let me remind you today that you belong to a great, big, beautiful story, and you're meant to be that light. Now, the second group, there are always people here at Cornerstone that have never joined themselves to Jesus. You have never placed yourself in the story of God. I just want to remind you of something today, and that is that you're loved. There's never been a day that he's turned his face from you. You're like that bread in the temple where the light shines upon it. There's never been a day that he's turned his back from you. There's a place at his table. And you may be struggling through life. There may be certain parts of your life that you would describe as dark, obscure, dangerous, confusing, even harmful. Jesus wishes to shine light on all of those things. To help you walk in a new way, a wise way. A secure way, a loving way, a purposeful way. But you need to receive it. The gospel is a gift. And that's why we're told in many of the famous Christmas passages, to those that receive him, including here in John, to those that receive him, he gives them the right to be called children of God. This story is absolutely for you. And you simply join your story to his story through faith. Say, God, I, I trust in you. I realize that you've been a part of my life all along, that you've never turned from me. I confess that I've turned from you. Please forgive me and move back towards God. And he will come in. And you know what he'll do? He'll do what he's done for millions of people through the ages. He will prove himself over and over again to you, the light of life. Light always works. It always helps. It always transforms. And that's what Jesus does. So let's pray together. As we start this season, I hope it's full of meaning for you. It gives you some things to talk about with your family and friends, things to remember. Do you light the candles and drive by the lights and see the symbols? Father, we thank you for great big stories. But Lord, this isn't a fairy tale. This is a true story of a man who really lived, 
and started as a baby and was born in danger, was born in obscurity, but lived a life not only marking the way for us of how we should live, but living a life so that he might stand in our place when the punishment needed to be handed out. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the unique way the Christmas story tells the gospel. Father, help each one of us receive more and more what you want to give us this year. You're never tired. You never grow tired of being generous and giving more. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts might be open, that we might receive more and more what you have for us, more light in our life. Wherever there is darkness, Father, we open ourselves up to you and ask for transformation. Father, we thank you for the image of light. We thank you that it's like God and what it does. Help us walk in that light this month. In Jesus' name, amen.